8.30 on Thursday, September 20th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we'll hear from intervention specialists on the growing number of LGBTQ youth considering suicide after experiencing rejection. What I hear most is I'm not asking my family to agree, but just to accept and love me. Then the latest from a state legislator as officials meet to discuss the future of the Mississippi River. And in our book club, meet author Nick White with his new book, Sweet and Low. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi mental health advocates say reaching Mississippi's LGBTQ youth is critical for suicide prevention. The state ranks third in the nation for suicides among 15 to 24-year-olds. And while little data is available about the rate of suicides among the state's LGBTQ youth, advocates say the group is at risk. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer young people who are rejected by their families are eight times more likely to attempt suicide than those who are not. That's according to the Trevor Project, a national suicide prevention organization. Kevin Wong is director of communications for the Trevor Project. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier how the program got started. There was a short film that aired on HBO, actually around the time where LGBTQ and mental health and suicide issues were a little taboo. So it got a lot of pickup, but We wanted to make sure that anybody who saw the film on HBO uh, had a resource to go to. So our co-founders founded the first 24-7 lifeline for LGBTQ youth that day, and the phone hasn't stopped ringing since. That's what I was going to ask you, if you get a lot of calls. Yeah. uh, Actually, about each year, we receive about 68,000 calls, uh, chats, and texts. So we have Trevor Lifeline, Trevor Chat, and Trevor Text. What do you find in your experience and in working for the project are the challenges for LGBTQ youth? It really runs the gamut. There's a variety of different topics and issues facing LGBTQ today from coming out or family acceptance. Maybe it's peer groups. Maybe it's even navigating what it means to be transgender. So it's a little bit of everything. And what do you hope to come out of this? When they call, they get some help in the immediate moment, I would assume. What happens after that? So you already know our mission is to end suicide among LGBTQ youth. So we're always making sure that we're keeping our mission in mind when speaking to those youth on the phone or chat or text, uh, whether that's helping them uh, figure out what their next steps are, asking them if they are suicidal and talking them through what that process is, We also want to make sure that they have the right resources, whether that's locally or getting them the help that they need. So we always ask open-ended questions to get them talking. Um, We want to make sure that if they do have a suicide plan, they express that because when you hear more about their plans, we can get them the help that they need. In the culture today, there seems to be um, more education or more uh, knowledge of the gay community than in the past. Do you see the stigma fading or do these youth still feel like they're isolated? Yeah, so we do see acceptance growing. That being said, there is a stigma, like I said, around mental health and also a stigma around being LGBTQ. 
So for us, those unique cross-sections kind of meet at the Trevor Project, right? So we're always working to further that education, whether it's LGBTQ competency in a school, in a corporation, or even in local government. So we're working to help that uh, education piece and then also advocate for more information on LGBTQ young people and mental health and suicide. What are the uh, types of things that can be done to prevent these youth from taking their lives? I think the first step is listening and making sure you feel comfortable talking about it with other people. So there is a myth out there that says if you talk about suicide or if you ask somebody directly about whether they're thinking about suicide, then that might make them more more likely to attempt suicide, or if it wasn't on their mind before, it's something that they're going to think about now. So that is a complete myth. Research says if you ask someone directly, hey, are you thinking about suicide? Are you um, experiencing suicidal ideation? You can actually help them get the help they need. Um, and especially if you're asking them, hey, do you have a suicide plan? If you follow up with details like how and where and when, you have more information to be able to help them. So if someone needs help, what should they do? Who, how can they reach you? They can contact the Trevor Project. There's always going to be someone here 24-7 for you. Uh, you can call 1-866-488-7386. So that's uh, for you, Trevor. People can reach out by calling your hotline. Is there another way to get more information? Yep. They can find our resources at thetrevorproject.org. Kevin Wong with The Trevor Project. Thank you so much. Thank you, Desiree. Gary Johnson is a psychotherapist with My Brother's Keeper. The Mississippi nonprofit provides medical care to LGBTQ community. She tells our Desiree Frazier some LGBTQ youth experience feelings of stress and hopelessness. A lot of times there is no place to reach out. The um, Maybe their home life is stressful and unwelcoming. So a lot of times you will find that that population of people as well as that age group seems to find little hope in, um, you know, going on and a lot of times just feel like there's no one else to talk to. So... A lot of times suicide ideations is where it starts, and a lot of times they will either complete suicide or definitely make suicide attempts because they're feeling like there's nothing else I can do. I can't change myself, and I'm not being loved as who I am, so what other choice do I have? And I understand that rejection by family is a significant issue. Rejection by family is would probably be what I've seen in my 20 years of work is one of the highest, the highest, um, I would say one of the highest things that kind of push people to that direction. A lot of times if we can get the family, the biological blood relatives to be accepting to the LGBT community, you will see that that population of people can go on and be more productive in their, of course, their personal life, but as well as their, um, you know, careers and education. But it starts there. A lot of times if the family isn't accepting, 
You have people that will overcompensate in all kinds of ways. They will um, reach out sometime to community or people that are not so um, positive. So if we can get the family to understand and to come in for counseling if you don't understand, understand this is your person, love them as they are, and you will see a difference in how they go out into the world. You talked about the family's rejection. What do they want from the family? Acceptance. What I hear most is, I'm not asking my family to agree, but just to accept and love me as their son, as their daughter, as their trans son, as their trans daughter, but to just accept me. We have so many people that are not allowed to go home, literally. They're not allowed to come home. We have people that are... um, You know, they're told many different things that let them know it is not okay for you to be who you are with your family. And there are so many people that have decided that that is so uncomfortable for them to change the different hats of being this person here, that person there, that they've decided to go to the streets for many different reasons to try to receive love and acceptance And a lot of people have decided that life is not worth living if my family, if my own mom, my own dad, my own siblings don't love me, don't care for me. A lot of people have decided to take their own lives for that reason. Do you find that you're able to restore family relationships or uh, is that something that rarely happens? We find that... If we can find one family member that's willing, not willing to agree and understand, but if we can find one family member that's willing to see their family member that's hurting. So if we can find that one family member, a lot of times that's the gateway of getting that person kind of back into the family fold. So if we can get that one family member in for that one family session, I have seen things happen that even surprise the person that is hurting, the person that is in a place of, you know, depression or anxiety or dealing with some type of mood issue that's kind of leading them down that path of suicide. But if we can get that family in, and we do see some families to come in. Every now and then we will see a family member that will come in, and a lot of times that person will be the spokesman for the person that's hurting to say, hey, this is our cousin, this is our brother, this is our sister. You know, this is where they are. They're in the place of wanting to take their life. Do we want them alive or do we want them the way we want them? Sometimes it takes some time now. Sometimes we will work with a person for four years before the family comes in. But the family, if the family gets in here, a lot of times we can turn it around. September is Suicide Prevention Month. To see our team's updates throughout the day, follow MPB News on Twitter. 
Coming up, the latest from a state legislator as officials meet to discuss the future of the Mississippi River. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Robinson inviting you to join us right here on MPB for Friday night under the lights. We'll get you all the scores and keep you up to date on all the players at 10 p.m. every Friday night this fall. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Friday night under the lights. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Officials representing the cities and districts along the Mississippi River are taking a stand against plastic pollution. The members of the Mississippi River Cities and Towns Initiative say the Mississippi River main stem provides 80 billion gallons of fresh water to industries each day and drinking water for 20 million people in 50 cities along its path. At the same time, much of the plastic found in the Gulf comes from land-based sources carried down the river. This year, the MRCTI annual meeting is addressing what they call a major threat to source water and the freshwater economy of the region. Mayor Rita Albrecht from Bemidji, Minnesota, says the tourism industry depends on a clean river. Plastics are what we refer to as persistent pollutant. Plastics don't break down. They simply become smaller and smaller and eventually turn into a dangerous confetti that spreads toxins and accumulates in the food chain, eventually harming all of us through the food we eat and the water we drink. And in my region of the Mississippi, we are dependent on tourism as a major economic driver. Tourism and outdoor recreation comprise the second largest economy of the entire Mississippi River. And we are absolutely dependent on the river's ecology being completely uncompromised. Mississippi mayors and legislators are in attendance at the meeting. House Democrat Abe Hudson of Cleveland tells us more. It has been great to partner with the Mississippi River cities and towns initiatives so that uh, I can better understand the issues that mayors in small uh, and big communities have. Uh, The Mississippi River uh, is one of the most important assets uh, that we have in our country. And so uh, I think it's important for those of us who work in the legislature in those several states that the Mississippi River flows through to to listen to those folks and understand what's going on. What is the purpose of the group to oversee the health of the Mississippi River and how it benefits river communities? There were uh, 20 legislators here from uh, six different states. Uh, We had our own separate meetings, and the Mississippi mayors had their own separate meetings, and we then had meetings together. Uh, This gave us a chance to talk about things at the state level, and also they got a chance to talk about things at the local level. Uh, But one of the primary reasons that we came and talked was because of plastics pollution. Uh, A lot of folks don't know and understand that uh, over 500 million straws are used every single day. And oftentimes people think that those straws are put into garbage cans or disposed of the proper way. Unfortunately, uh, they end up in coast, a lot of times in coastal areas, but uh, in many cases, uh, they are dumped into the Mississippi River and float down to the Gulf, which is Mississippi. Uh, and so it's important for Mississippi legislators like myself to have conversations with mayors and legislators who represent other states uh, that are a part of the Mississippi River system to let them understand that, look, 
uh, we have to work together uh, to do something about plastic pollution. There was a major announcement made yesterday. Can you share that with us? There has been a major commitment uh, made to uh, ensure uh, that we all uh, go back to our communities and do a better job uh, of ensuring that plastics uh, pollution uh, is uh, mitigated. And so I'm fired up about coming back to my community and sharing with people uh, some of the things that we can do in the Mississippi Delta to ensure uh, that uh, plastics pollution uh, is something that uh, we can fight against and, uh, and mitigate. Um, oftentimes, small communities like the ones that I represent uh, are not always engaged uh, in pollution conversation. Uh, and I'm doing um, my job of making sure that I go back to my community and talk about the importance of our environment and making sure that people know that even if you don't have a recycling program, even if you don't have a, a pollution plan, uh, it's not too late to start. Uh, and I think Mississippi, uh, it bears the name of the Mississippi River, should certainly be one of the forerunners for this kind of initiative. There have been some cities around the country that have already taken the action to ban plastic straws in their communities or cities. Would you hope to see that sort of thing in some of the towns you represent? Oh, certainly. Uh, I do know that it uh, is a one-step-at-a-time process, though. Uh, trying to superimpose those kinds of things on communities uh, might be a difficult task. But uh, I do believe that it's us as individuals, not from a local or state legislative capacity, who can start doing some things. For example, uh, when we go into restaurants, instead of just taking the straw, what we can do is say, hey, I don't need a straw. Keep the straw. I'm going to drink my drink without a straw. Uh, and I think those kinds of things help to create a paradigm shift for not only individuals, but also uh, the business owners and people who uh, serve people uh, straws. So, uh, and I only use restaurants uh, and fast food places as an example. Uh, there has been um, much talk uh, around um, reducing the amount of plastic bags. Uh, I know there is one company uh, in, that does business in Mississippi, a, a grocer, uh, who has decided to eliminate plastic bags in the in the coming year. So those kinds of things let me know that small steps are being taken to reduce the plastic uh, consumption, but we still have a long way to go. Is this something you could introduce uh, as legisl legislation in the upcoming session to have a statewide ban on plastic straws? Absolutely. And it is a conversation that uh, I had uh, last night with a couple of my colleagues from Mississippi. Uh, I uh, am fortunate to have a couple of Mississippi mayors here with me, Mayor George Flags from Vicksburg, Mayor Eric Simmons from Greenville, Mississippi. And all three of us, uh, while being here, have engaged in conversation about policy initiatives that we can possibly introduce. Nothing has been set in stone, but we're all very committed to doing something and making sure we make some advancements in this area. Representative Abe Hudson serves District 29, which includes Bolivar and Sunflower Counties. Representative Hudson, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much. The MRCTI members aim to reduce plastics in the waste stream by 20% or more by the year 2020. Coming up in our book club, meet author Nick White with his new book, Sweet and Low. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
Can't get to a radio? Well, don't worry. MPB Think and Music Radio are available online and on our MPB public media app. It's simple. Just log on to our website at mpbonline.org to get started. This is MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. In today's book club, meet author Nick White. His new book, Sweet and Low, is a collection of short stories that offer unique perspectives on how people's identities are shaped by their environments, sometimes for the better and sometimes not. The Mississippi native says his connection with the South runs deep. White says the American South is a place of contradictions where even he had to separate his sense of self from the characteristics of his home. He tells us about his hometown and new book. Well, I grew up in a small area um, known as Possum Neck. Uh, it's east of a town called West and west of a town called Ware. That's uh, <laughs> like what a, we would tell people. <laughs> sounds like an Abbott and Costello routine. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> um, usually when I tell people where it is in Mississippi, it's near Kosciuszko. And uh, my parents still live there. You've been published in a lot of periodicals and journals and other publications, and you, you've written one novel, How to Survive a Summer. Sweet and Low is a book of short stories. Is that where you think your strength is in writing short stories? I would say for me it's easier when I'm writing a short story to think about the full scope and breadth of that short story when I'm not in front of the notebook or in front of the computer screen writing it, I can sort of carry a story in my head around with me when I'm doing other things like laundry or walking. I can sort of think about the story and figure it out and try to continue sort of revising it in my head. For a novel, it seems like I can't hold all the pieces of a novel together in my head at one time like that. You have 10 stories in Mm -hmm. Sweet and Low. Did you write all of them together, in a sense, for this book, or did you cull from other things you've written? I did not think it was going to be a book. uh, So the book is divided into two sections. The second section is all about the character of Forney Culpepper. I sort of think of that as like a cycle of stories with the character of Forney Culpepper. But at the time when I was writing it, I didn't know it was going to be a cycle. It was just sort of curiosity. You know, I think books are written with plot in mind or place. Your stories, at least in this book, are very character-driven. Yeah, that's that's true. I think it sounds sort of crazy when I tell other people this, but when I start writing, these characters, they do become real for me. And I want to treat them with the same amount of respect and empathy with their stories as I would a real person. And I, I sort of try to teach my students that, too, that, you know, if you don't care about your characters, if you don't care about the story that you're writing, there's no way the reader will. Your characters are not just pawns on a chessboard for you to move around, but you have to, you have to give them the respect and dignity that you would give any human, and they will come alive on the page. I really believe that. What do you hope you leave readers with? What do you want them to get from it? I used to have a teacher who, when someone would ask him, his name was Lee K. Abbott, uh, he's a famous short story writer, published nothing but short story collections, and someone asked him, like, who did he write for? 
he used to say that he wrote for the lady on the bus. Um, he said he had this idea of this woman on the bus, this lady who was just had enough time to get from point A to point B. And she just, you know, she had a busy, hectic life and she just wanted to sit down and read a story and just be taken away from her life for just a second and put into someone else's. And so he would do all the work so she would have all the fun during like her traveling on the bus. And so I think that's what I try to do too. I want my readers to, for a moment, just completely in the short stories, inhabit the lives of other people and have like a fully lived experience on the page. If that makes any sense. <laughs> it does make sense. Nick White is the author of Sweet and Low, and I thank you so much for being with us, Nick. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's MPB's all-new show, Autocorrect. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you think about a story or send us a news tip by visiting MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.